God's word has been preserved for us, and we trust it, we can believe it. It's uh, for our instruction, for our edification, for us to know how to walk in a way that's pleasing to him. And so this morning we want to read and study again in God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I'm going to read from verses 20 down to 25 as we finish out this section here on prophecy in tongues. So let me, pr- or let me read. Uh, verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this precious book that has been preserved for us. Thank you for the instruction that we find here uh, from the Apostle Paul to this church at Corinth and for the many, many ways that we can learn from this instruction. God, far too often we find that the heart of Corinth is still the heart that's in us today. So I pray that the words that you use here will instruct us, will teach us, so that we can be informed, so that our thinking would be mature, and that we would act and we would worship you in a way that's pleasing to you and that respects and understands those that are gathering in our midst. So help us this morning, I pray again. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated as we study together. As Alex mentioned, this is the last little section in chapter 14 to the Corinthian church on their use of tongues. Paul will finish out the remainder of the chapter talking about the corporate worship service and how that's to be handled orderly and without chaos. And and he he talks a little bit more there about uh, the, uh, the way corporate worship is supposed to look. But he has a little bit more to say here in this section we're going to look at this morning about tongues and its inferiority compared to the gift of prophecy. Let me uh, begin, I guess, by reiterating what is often offered as the purpose of tongues, uh, particularly among our brothers and sisters in Pentecostal or charismatic circles. They will tell us that the purpose of tongues is primarily... Uh, for personal edification and for devotion. In other words, they believe that tongues are given as a private prayer language uh, in that it builds up the individual as he or she prays in tongues. Uh, It kind of takes a person to a whole new spiritual level. But as we've studied uh, through chapter 14, we found, in fact, that that was not the purpose of tongues. 
That wasn't why God gave the gift of tongues to the early church. In fact, if you study through the scriptures and if you study prayer, particularly through the New Testament, you will never find a verse where the Lord ever instructs us to pray in a tongue. And you will never find a verse where any individual in the New Testament is praying in a tongue. Jesus gave us the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And he says, I want you to pray like this. And then he gave us what we know as the Lord's Prayer. But he spoke it in a common language, a language that they understood. And he said, this is how I want you to pray. He never instructed them uh, to pray in a foreign tongue or a different tongue. And I think if that's the model prayer, if that's how Jesus would want us to pray, then we should take instruction from that. So Paul says, the purpose of tongues is not for personal edification and it's not for prayer. That's not how the Lord taught us to pray. We've also studied throughout this chapter that tongues is not meant for corporate edification. In other words, when the entire body of believers comes together, tongues was not useful in those types of worship services unless there was an interpreter. Why? Because nobody could understand it. Nobody could grasp what the, what the person was saying. So Paul says, a foreign tongue does nothing to build up a congregation. So what was the purpose of tongues? Well, we, we looked at this a while back, but a tongues was for individual circumstances, in individual places, with individual persons, with the purpose of evangeliz- evangelization, teaching them, evangelizing them. So in this chapter, Paul over and over has reiterated the fact that tongues in this Corinthian church is becoming a real problem. And he's saying, I want you to understand what's more important is the gift of prophecy. Why is prophecy more important? Well, we've been studying prophecy was that gift that was given to individuals in which God gave them a revelation or God gave them some amount of knowledge and then they spoke that to the people that were there. It was, a, it was a teaching gift. Prophecy was not necessarily predicative in nature. It was a word from God that was meant to exhort the people. It said, here's what God would have us to do. Here's what God would have us to believe. Here's what God wants us to know about himself. And so as the people heard that and as they understood that and as they weighed those prophecies against one another, they said, ah, This is who God is, and and this is how God wants us to obey. And so Paul said, prophecy is far better than tongues because everybody can understand it. Everybody can hear it, and everybody can know uh, what they're to do. It it builds them up. It it gives them knowledge. It it helps them to live differently because of, of what they're learning. So Paul has been very clear about this throughout this chapter. No ambiguity. And he's asking the Corinthians to get over themselves and their prideful use of the tongues because it's really destroying their worship services when they're getting together. So as we study through this chapter, we looked at verses 1 through 5, and there Paul says, prophecy is greater than tongues because it builds up the whole church. And then in chapter, or verses 6 down through verse 19, he says, prophecy is more useful than tongues because of its immediate intelligibility. The words are spoken and everybody knows what, it, what was said. It's 
a common language. We all get it. And so then today, in verses 20 down through verse 25, Paul's going to say prophecy is greater than tongues because of the effect that it has upon unbelievers as well as believers who are present in God's house when God's people gather together. Here's the deal. Anytime you and I gather together for a corporate worship service, it's primarily a place for believers together. We, we alluded to that a bit last week. It's primarily a place for believers to come together so that they can be equipped, Ephesians 4, to do the works of ministry. So it's the old saying, we gather to equip and then we scatter to evangelize. Or we gather to equip and we scatter to serve. So it's primarily a place here where we are this morning uh, for believers to come together. But inevitably, there will always be unbelievers that join in corporate worship services. That is true of every church in every age. Unbelievers will stick their head in the door or a friend will invite them and they'll be present inside that corporate worship service. And so while the service is geared primarily for believers and equipping believers so that they know what God would have them to do, Paul will not allow us to ignore the effect that our corporate worship service has on unbelievers who are also in our presence. And that's what Paul wants to focus in on here in these few verses. Because here's Paul's concern to the Corinthians, and this is what we're going to study this morning. He's saying this, the effect of your tongue speaking on unbelievers who are coming into your service is this. It is sealing their doom. It's sealing their doom. We'll talk about that in a minute. But to Paul, this was unacceptable. Paul was one of, if not the greatest missionary of all time. Paul's heart was for unbelievers. Paul ached for people to come to know the Lord. Paul wanted to see every tribe and and tongue and people group represented in the kingdom of God. This is what Paul desired more than anything else. He says, I give my life for unbelievers. And so when he sees this church service and, and the way the Corinthians are distorting this gift of tongues, he almost has a coronary before he can turn this thing around and say, that's not how I want you to conduct this service. The effect that that has on unbelievers, it is is a tremendous hindrance to the kingdom of God. And Paul says, we got to get this fixed. So Paul's going to give them instructions and help them to understand why this speaking in tongues and, and this atmosphere that they had created in this church was really harmful to unbelievers that were coming in. So let's follow Paul's instruction as he begins here in verse 20. He says, again, verse 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And in case you don't get the implication there, what Paul is saying, I want you to do this primarily because you're not. You are being infants in your thinking. 
You are acting like children when you come together for your corporate worship service. You ought to be mature, and your thinking ought to be mature, but that's not how you're acting. The Corinthians were more interested in entertainment than they were in education. We could say the Corinthians preferred the spectacular over the tongue speaking to the specifics over doctrinal issues. They'd rather have the show than they would the know, okay? We could say it like this. Spiritually, they pretended to be adults, but when they got together, they really exposed themselves at being children in this idea of of spiritual gifting and what it meant to exercise spiritual gift. So Paul's saying, you are the exact opposite of what I would want you to be when you get together for church services. You should be infants in evil, but mature in your thinking. That is, you shouldn't try to know everything about what's evil. You guys, you Corinthians, have enough evil in your background. You have enough worldly in your background that you're dragging into this church. You need to stop. Last semester in school, I had to read a book about uh, childhood sexual abuse. And our professor wisely told us, using this verse, I want you to be infants in, your, in, infants in evil, um, but mature in your thinking. I really would rather you not know about all of the evils that exist in the world. And so uh, the recommendation from our professor was, I-, I would recommend that you not read chapter two in this book. It is generally unedifying. It won't help you in your ability to counsel. Uh, I want you to be evil or infants in evil. Well, what does every immature brat like myself do? He goes to chapter two and he looks. And I read five pages and I was sickened in my stomach. It was accounts of childhood sexual abuse Uh, I turned to chapter 3 and I never looked back again. And I wished that I had never even read those few pages because there were mental images then that were stuck in my head that will always be there because of what I read. And so I think Paul is dead on when he says, I want you to be infants in evil. You guys know enough about the stuff that happens in the world. I want you to be mature in your thinking when you come here. I want you to be wise in how God would want you to conduct corporate worship services and not be aware of all of those other things going on inside of your minds. So here's what Paul tells them. Here's what Paul says, I want you to be thinking about when you think about the spiritual gift of tongues, in particular, the spiritual gift of tongues as it relates to those unbelievers who happen to come into your church service. And he goes all the way back into Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 28, and he quotes some verses there. And he, he pulls one out, and he, it's what we read here in verse 21. And look at it, it says this. He's paraphrasing a bit from Isaiah 28, and he says this. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Well, you and I read that verse, and we kind of scratch our heads and say, what What does that mean? 
Okay, I understand the foreign tongues part, but how does that relate to unbelievers? Paul, why are you pulling that verse out of Isaiah 28 and applying it here? What's going on? Well, if we understand a little bit of the context of Isaiah 28, we'll understand the meaning here. We'll grasp it. So let's talk about that for just a minute so we understand. Isaiah was a prophet sent by God around 550 B.C., And in this particular passage, he was sent down to the southern kingdom of Judah. And he was warning them. Isaiah was coming and he was saying, repent. You need to change your ways. And if if you don't repent, another nation is going to come in and they're going to conquer you. Uh, You're going to be defeated. You you need to turn back to Yahweh. You need to turn back to the the holy God. You You need to repent or God's judgment will come upon you. And so Isaiah is going to the priests and he's going to the spiritual leaders and he's begging them, he's pleading with them to repent. And here's what he finds. Hold your finger there in 1 Corinthians 14 and turn back to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28, and we'll see the picture of what Isaiah finds as he's carrying this message to the southern kingdom of Judah. A simple message of repent and be saved. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 7. He shows up. He's getting ready to talk to the priests, talk to the spiritual leaders there at Judah. Here's what he finds in verse 7. He says, These, talking about the priests, also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They they stumble in giving judgment. Here are the people who are supposed to be giving spiritual leadership to the children of Israel in Judah, and they're flat drunk. Isaiah goes to them to give them the message and they can't even stand upright. They're reeling with drunkenness. The picture there is despicable. The scene is ugly. Look at verse 8. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Here are the priests. Here are the leaders. So drunk. They're vomiting all over the tables. They're lying in the waste that's there. It's an ugly insult to the office and to the God that they serve. So Isaiah is given in the message. He's saying, repent or judgment is coming. Repent or judgment is coming. What's their response? Isaiah 28, verse 9. They respond to Isaiah and they say this. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk... Those taken from the breast? In other words, Isaiah, who are you going to teach? Babies? Come on. We're the educated ones here. We're the priests. We're the ones that have been trained in the laws of God. You are an uneducated fool. And here's how they describe Isaiah's teaching in verse 10. For it is precept upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here little, there little. Isaiah, your message is so simple, it's ignorant. 
Repent and be saved. Repent and be saved. That's all we ever hear from you, Isaiah. Repent and be saved. It's baby talk. Get lost. We don't need that kind of talk around here. So here's Isaiah's indictment in verses 11 and 12. He looks at the priests in their filth, in their disgrace, and he says this, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue will the Lord speak to this people, to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. Isaiah is saying this. If you will not hear my message, the simple message of repent and be saved, then know this. A people of strange lips, foreigners, will invade this land and they will take you over. And when you are surrounded by all of those people speaking in a language, speaking in a tongue that you don't understand, that will be a sign that God's judgment is on you. That's how it happened. The Assyrians came in. They ransacked the kingdom of Judah. They took its people captive. And the sign of God's judgment on his people for rejecting the message of his prophet was that there was a foreign tongue surrounding them. They had no idea what was going on. They were confused. It was a sign of judgment. So what does that have to do with the Corinthians? Why would Paul reach all the way back into the book of Isaiah and bring that story forward to talk to the Corinthians about their gift of tongues? Why is he bringing it into a church issue? We'll go back to 1 Corinthians 14, and I think verse 23 gives us the answer, and then we'll back up into verse 22. Look at verse 23. Paul gives us the answer. If therefore... The whole church comes together and all speaks in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? What happens in the church of Corinth when an outsider or an unbeliever walks into their church service? Well, here's what happens. They walk in and they are immediately surrounded by all kinds of Corinthians speaking in foreign tongues, babbling in languages that they don't understand. No one's interpreting. No one's giving the meaning. No one's focusing on the teaching. All that's happening around them are people exploiting their spiritual gift in some way to show off the fact that they have been gifted by God. And when that happens... When the unbeliever sees that, when the outsider comes in and he's suddenly surrounded by all of this chaos that's going on, the unbeliever is totally confused. And so what does he do? He says, you people must be out of your minds. You people are crazy. There's nothing but a bunch of nutheads in here. And what does he do? He walks out the door and he leaves. 
never to know the knowledge of God, never to have a knowledge of his sinfulness, never to have the knowledge of his need for a savior. And when he walks out the door, his fate is sealed because he has no knowledge now of the gospel. Tongues has just become a sign of judgment on him because he's going to be judged now because he didn't hear the message. Just like the Judeans were surrounded by foreign tongues and that was a sign of judgment on them, so the unbeliever, the outsider, when he's surrounded by foreign tongues, it brings about such an effect that he leaves and it seals his doom. Does that make sense? So go back now to verse 22. Verse 22 says this, Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Now we understand why. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If tongues were a sign of judgment then what was prophecy? It was a sign of blessing. It always was a sign of blessing. When God would send his prophets to his people, it was because he loved them. He wanted to bless them. He wanted his word to be communicated clearly. It had the intent of of bringing God's word to the people so that they could understand and so that they would come into conformance with what God wanted them to do. So the gift of prophecy, Paul's saying, is assigned to believers. It's, it's this, it's, God, it's Paul saying, when you have prophecy, know this, God is still working with you. God is still calling you. God is still giving you his word in, in plain and understandable, in this case, Greek, so that you can understand, so that you can come back. So tongues sign for unbelievers because it, it, it seals them, it, it pushes them away. It causes judgment to come because they don't hear God's word. But prophecy brings blessing because it does bring God's word in, and people can understand it and people can respond. And here's the really cool thing about prophecy. Not only does it help believers, but Paul says it also helps those unbelievers who come in. Look at verses 24 and 25. He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever comes in or outsider enters, what happens then? Well, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. He's listening to prophecy. He understands it. And so he falls on his face. He worships God. And he declares that God is really among you. Pop quiz. What is prophecy? Prophecy is God's truth simply proclaimed in a language that people understand that moves and directs God's people. It's a plain message from God through a human instrument to his people. And look what happened when that unbeliever walked in and instead of encountering tongues, he encountered prophecy. It says this, it says he was convicted. All of a sudden he he realized that they're talking about 
sin. They're, they're talking about living to please the Lord and, and he's convicted because that, that's not where he's at. And it says he's, he's called to account by all. That doesn't mean everybody's walking up to him and wagging their finger in his face. It just means this, as, as he hears the testimony of people and as he realizes how God is, is working among them, he's being called to the carpet. Where's your life? How are you measuring up to God's standard? And it says the, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. All of those secret sins that he thought he was doing such a good job of, of hiding are, are suddenly being brought into the light because this church and these prophets, they're, they're talking about what it means uh, to be a sinner. And he realizes, because of the prophecy, he realizes that he is a great sinner and that the eternal judgment of God rests on him. That unless he repents, and unless he turns away from every fit of anger, unless he, he turns away from coveting his, his neighbor's wife, unless he turns away from those addictions, all of those things are bringing about the, the wrath of God. He's convicted. He, he's, he's helpless. And this realization causes him to fall on his face. And that's a picture of a person who is incredibly humbled. A person who kneels down in a cry of desperation and says, I fall on my face because I can't look up at this holy God. And it's at that moment of conviction, it's at that moment of one's secret heart issues being exposed that Jesus stands there and he says, I'm the only hope. I am the great savior that you need. I am the perfect son of God. I have died for your sins. I have rose to have victory over death and over sin. And if you will repent, and if you will believe by faith, if you will believe in me, you can be saved. And what does that unbeliever do then? Paul says he worships God. In other words, he becomes a believer. He's converted. He finds faith that he never had before to say, I believe on the risen Son of God. And he's, his life is changed in a moment. And he begins to worship God. And he says, it is amazing I come into this corporate worship service. I hear this message. It transforms my heart and it's evidence that God is really among you. You see why Paul says prophecy is so much better than tongues? This is the same message that we hold out to unbelievers today. If you will repent of your sin, and turn by faith and believe in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. It's the same message for 2,000 years. If you believe in him, he will give you the strength and the power to keep trusting in him and to be pleasing to him in the midst of any circumstances going on in your life. It may look like your life is messed up. It may look like there is no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no way you could possibly... And Jesus says, I'm here. I'll always be here with you. 
I will guide you through that. You can still live pleasing to me no matter what's going on around you. So hear Paul's stern rebuke to the Corinthians. Don't mess this up. Don't come in here showing off your gift of tongues and cause unbelievers to leave and never hear the message of the gospel. Paul says that is a sickening thought. Paul says, when unbelievers come in, while the service is geared mostly toward believers, you've got to be considerate of those unbelievers you've got to understand that they need to understand what's going on just as much as you do. That's the truth about tongues. Now, there's a lot of things that we can glean from this about today and to help us. I, I, want, to give us just a th- I want to give us three application points that we can pull away from this today and apply even in, in our church services. Number one is this. We need to be aware that unbelievers come into our circles. Unbelievers come into our worship service. I said it before. It's true of every church of every age. Unbelievers will be there. But here's what I want you to notice. Paul calls them unbelievers. He doesn't call them seekers. Uh, You may have heard of the term seekers or seeker-friendly churches. Uh, It's a term that came about in the 80s and, and into the 90s by churches that were convinced that there were some people who came to church because they were already on the path to God. They were already progressing to God. They were very close to accepting God and they just needed that final little nudge to kind of get them to make that decision for God. They became known as a seeker-friendly churches and so what these churches attempted to do uh, was to make the transition from the world into the church as seamless as possible. And so they would do things like this. Um, All of the windows uh, in the sanctuary of the church would be removed. Um, Lights in seeker-friendly churches were all dimmed. The only lights uh, on the stage. And the idea was to create a a very individualistic um, experience because we don't want these seekers to have Um, eyes staring at them. So uh, you kind of make it dark and then they won't feel like people are looking at them. Um, Bring in a rock band and and make the music as loud as possible so so, um, these seekers wouldn't feel bad singing because they don't want people to hear them. So if we have the music loud enough, then you don't have to hear your neighbor singing and um, took away all of symbols of Christianity crosses out of of the church, anything to make the experience as easy, uh, as non, as unoffensive uh, to seekers as possible. Sermons then were crafted to be very positive and and always uplifting because you wanted to give seekers that that last little oomph, if you will, uh, to make a decision, to to sign the card, uh, to walk the aisle. These are called seeker-friendly churches. The movement is, is dying off, but a lot of the effects still remain today. Notice in, in this chapter, Paul never addresses them as seekers. He, he always calls them unbelievers. 
I don't think he's trying to be mean. I don't think he's trying to, to be hurtful. I think he's trying to be theologically accurate. Because it was Paul who wrote Romans chapter 3, and he said this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, and then listen to this, no one seeks for God. Isn't that interesting? The very premise on which seeker-friendly churches were built is a false premise. Because Paul says no one seeks for God. He says they're unbelievers. They're unbelievers. So here's the truth then for us today. We're going to have unbelievers that, that come into our midst. We don't hang a big sign over them. We don't go point our fingers in their face and say, you're an unbeliever. But it's a simple recognition that there are unbelievers. Let's call a spade a spade. And so what are we to do? How are we to teach and how are we to train? I think that's the second point that we can pull out of here. We don't avoid the hard truths of Scripture. We don't avoid the hard truths of Scripture. Notice that Paul says that the unbeliever was convicted by all. He was called to account by all. The secrets of his heart were disclosed. That can only happen when the truth of Scripture is preached. We don't water down the message. We don't take away all references to sin. We don't stop talking about the reality of hell. All of those things, if we would attempt to do those, would only bring about the ruin for unbelievers. Because unbelievers need to hear the truth of the scripture, that we're all sinners, right? We all need the saving grace of God. It's the old adage, it goes like this, you got to get them lost before you can get them saved. In other words, the good news of the gospel is only good news because it's set in the context of the bad news. And the bad news is you're a sinner, so here's the good news, Jesus loves sinners, Jesus came to save sinners. But you've got to preach the hard truth of Scripture so that people understand why they need the gospel, why they need Jesus Christ. So Paul says, that's what happens when the truth is preached. It's convicting. It brings out the secret motives of the heart. So that's why as a church, whenever we preach, we don't skip over hard passages. We teach what's there. We, we want unbelievers to be convicted and we want believers to be reminded what it was they were saved from so we don't point our fingers in unbelievers face but we do present the truth and let God's spirit then work in their heart the uh, the third and final thing I think that we can pull from this is that we need to keep teaching the whole counsel of God's word Just like the prophets of old were given to the church to give his people uh, God's word for edification, today God gives the church preachers and teachers and they are then entrusted to give God's word so that it encourages, it equips, it grows God's disciples. And so week after week when we come together, we give the whole counsel of God's word. We, We We don't skip over passages. We don't cherry pick. We just simply say, we're going to preach through this book of the Bible and we give the whole counsel everything that's there. Sometimes it's easy to grasp. Sometimes it's very controversial and we we all sort of bristle and we get a little nervous, but it's the whole counsel of God's word. We don't ignore any of it. 
I've been so encouraged over the last several years as I've heard and read about churches returning to the simple preaching of God's word. History has shown us that charismatic doesn't work. Seeker-friendly doesn't work. Emergent doesn't work. These are fads that come and go. It's like ocean waves. They, They sort of come and go. What does work? Preaching systematically through God's word so that our thinking is mature. That's what Paul is talking about. Taking scripture and preaching expositionally. That means whatever the meaning of the text is, that's the meaning of the sermon that morning. We draw our main points from the meaning of the text. Why? So that our hearts are informed. So that our mind and our will can react in holiness and not sinfulness. You may be encouraged to know um, that at least three churches that I know of um, have been influenced um, by providence to return to a systematic expositional preaching of God's word. It's been neat. I've been talking to pastors, uh, simply taking a book of the Bible and teaching through it. And I was talking to one pastor and I said, so what has been the reaction? How's your congregation related to that? And he said, one guy came to me and said, it is so good to get back to the basics of God's word and to get rid of all of that fluff that we had going on before. So I'm just encouraged by that, that we can be an encouragement to others as we teach and as we train and as other churches, not just here, but around the world are saying, there is power in God's word. Let's just return to that and let's just preach God's word. God is faithful to his word as we're faithful to preach it. And as we become mature in our thinking and as we exercise the spiritual gifts that God has given for today in such a way that edifies the body, we find that we're very mature and that we can grow together as a body of Christ. So I want us to be a church that continues to allow the word of God to change us and then to be a church that calls believers to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, it's here that you find hope. It's in a person, Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for our church. That's my prayer for churches across the world. So let me just pray to that end this morning. Father, you are amazing. (laughs) For lack of better words, you are, You and you alone are God. And you and you alone can bring us to a maturity in our thinking that we would never attain if we were left to our own vices. Father, sadly, if we didn't have this instruction here in the book of 1 Corinthians, we may very well be the church uh, that you would be rebuking. So, Father, we're so grateful that you've left us your word, you've preserved your word for us so that we can study it, we can teach it, and we can live by it. Father, I'm thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ that says we're sinners needing a Savior, and it was that Savior you provided, and it's in him that we live and breathe and we have our life and we have our sustenance. And I pray as a church that we would be 
true to your word, that we would not shy away from the hard truths of Scripture, and that because we teach and train in a way that's faithful to your word, I pray that you would bring unbelievers to yourself, to a saving knowledge of yourself, that just like Paul described here, that unbelievers would be convicted, that unbelievers would be called to account, and they would fall on their face and worship you, and they would say about providence, like they could say there, that Paul would say eventually, God is really in this place. We love you, and it's to those ends that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.